Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Don Tillman, hero of Graham Simpson's new novel, The Rosie Project, is a brilliant yet socially challenged professor of genetics. He's decided it's time he found a wife. And so in the orderly evidence-based manner with which Don approaches all things, he designs The Wife Project to find his perfect partner. That's a 16-page scientifically valid survey to filter out the drinkers, the smokers, the late arrivers. Rosie Jarman is all of these things. She's also strangely beguiling, fiery, intelligent. And while Don quickly disqualifies her as a candidate for the Wife Project, as a DNA expert, Don is particularly suited to help Rosie on her own quest, identifying her biological father. When an unlikely relationship develops as they collaborate on the Father Project, Don is forced to confront the spontaneous whirlwind that is Rosie, the realization that despite your best scientific efforts, you don't find love, it finds you. Graham Simpson is author of screenplays, short stories, novels, a couple of short plays, occasional producer of films. He's a former IT specialist in data modeling, founder of a business and IT consultancy. And he is husband of Anne Wiest, father of two, resident of Fitzroy in Melbourne, Australia. And he'll be in Utah on Saturday. He'll be reading from and signing copies of The Rosie Project at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City, Saturday evening at 7. Pleasure to welcome Graham Simpson to Access Utah. Welcome to the program. Good morning, Tom. You are on, I believe, a uh, Western U.S. swing on your book tour? I just arrived in Los Angeles yesterday morning from um, from Australia, so a little jet-lagged, and yeah. I'll spend uh, five days dotting my way across to New York City. Well, we appreciate you spending some time with, with, with us, uh, jet-lag uh, notwithstanding. Um, I'd like to start with you. Uh, you made a very interesting uh you might call it courageous decision at age 50 to sell your consulting business and become a writer. Yeah. Um, look, I had a, a reasonably successful, very successful consulting business. We employed around 60 or 70 staff um, Australia-wide. Uh, but I had made just as a, a vanity thing, as a, as a hobby, if you like, I'd made a feature film with my wife. And I got an enormous kick out of, out of doing that and decided I'd like to try to do that professionally. So... I, I sold the business and I enrolled in a screenwriting program. What was the film? Uh, the film was called Voluntary Act. It was based on an unpublished manuscript by my wife. Um, so I adapted that. I didn't actually write the story myself. Um, cast all of our friends, um, borrowed equipment, did everything on a shoestring, and, and produced a film which is a little cringeworthy to look at today. Mm. But um, but uh, somebody in the Australian film industry, uh, someone, Sue Maslin, who's an established film producer, actually saw the film because one of the people involved took it along to her film class and said, well, there's a lot of things to like and perhaps not to like in this film, but the screenwriter obviously knew what he was doing. And that gave me enough impetus, enough encouragement to think that maybe I could do this. Still, this is a pretty a pretty big move. Uh, obviously, things have worked out. The Rosie Project has a lot of buzz surrounding it, uh, doing quite well, but it, it might not have. Well, that's true. I didn't entirely give up the day job. I, mm. I, I sold the business, but I continued working as a freelancer, and I was running seminars on, um, on consulting skills and on data modeling, which was my specialist technical area. Um, I was doing that in Australia. I was doing that in the U.S. as well. So I still had an income coming in. And the nature of the work was such that I could manage to fit my studies and uh, my early filmmaking efforts around that. I've read uh, somewhere that you approached this project, the, the Rosie Project. I, I think you were heading toward a novel, but you wanted to do it in baby steps. Well, look, 
I guess I'd always wanted to do a novel since I was in my early 20s, but it, but in the same way that so many people say, oh, wow, I'd love to write a novel someday. It was something that you'd kick around in your head without ever doing anything serious about, without ever really putting words to paper. I think I made one desultory attempt to do that in my in my early 20s, and it was embarrassingly bad. So I put it aside and said, I'll stick to information technology. But... Um, this this uh, this filmmaking experience gave me some sort of hope that if I couldn't write a novel, maybe I could write a screenplay. So the Rosie Project started out as a screenplay without any intention that it would ever become a novel. Hmm, interesting. Uh, at what point did you decide, uh, well, this could become a novel? Um, about the beginning of 2012. Hmm. And wh- what was that process like? Well, I... I'd got a fairly well-developed screenplay. I had actually acquired a producer in Australia for that. And we were now looking around at uh, raising finance to make the film. And I said to the producer, would it help if I wrote it as a novel? And and I guess that was the externals of it, saying maybe it'll help to raise the money. But the truth was, I thought, you know, I always wanted to write this novel. I didn't think I could do it. But I've now got to a point where I have story, I have a, a clear plot, I have characters. I've even got some dialogue. Um, Maybe the step, as you put it now, maybe it's only a baby step or not such a huge step to go from that to to a novel. So I don't think I would have ever done it just to raise the money. I had to have that that drive inside me that I wanted to write the novel. So so that's what I did, and I was able to write it quite quite swiftly um, because I just knew the characters so well after they've been working five years on the screenplay. And now the the novel's been optioned for a film, so you'll it'll go back to a screenplay. Yeah, yeah, we've, we've gone full circle on that. And in fact, I was able to say to Sony Pictures when they wanted to option it, um, look, I've actually got a screenplay in my back pocket here, so we've got a starting point, and, and Sony were, were good enough to take me on as a screenwriter. So this is, uh, I read somewhere in an interview with you, you, uh, you researched the romantic comedy form. You went back and, and looked at a lot of romantic comedies. Yeah, you've done your homework, and I guess I did my homework too on that. Um, yeah, I was formally studying screenwriting, and I'm, I guess I'm a sort of guy who likes to have a theoretical background to what he's doing. I don't just sort of write from the gut. Uh, I want to know what I'm doing. So I made it a point as I went through my, through my uh, studies, um, I had this idea of the Rosie Project in my mind right from the start. It changed enormously over the time, but it was always the same core of an idea based on the same lead character. And when I realized that what I was writing was in effect structurally a romantic comedy, I thought I'd better learn about that form, how it's done. So I, I watched romantic comedies. Um, I also watched the old screwball comedies from the 1930s and so on, things like Bringing Up Baby, The Philadelphia Story, His Girl Friday, those sorts of old classics. And I think they probably influenced me as much as the more modern form of the romantic comedy. And you've said that uh, as you went back uh, in time, uh, in those earlier films, the women are stronger. That's absolutely right. Um, I think we're coming back to that a bit today, but there was a period where in the romantic comedy, the men were strong and the women were, well, we're used to the sort of 1950s sitcom style of woman. Um, But back in the 30s, the women were strong. They were at least the equal of the men that they were dealing with, and they had they had very strong roles. You think of someone like Catherine Hepburn or whatever, and well, it, it just seemed to me that uh, the way I look at life, the people I I know and work with, that those that was the sort of woman I wanted to have in um, in the Rosie Project. 
and you certainly you certainly do with uh, with Rosie Jarman. Um, I wonder, wonder if we could uh, start with Don Tillman. Uh, uh, tell me a bit about Don Don Tillman. Well, you did a wonderful summary at the beginning, but uh, Don Tillman, just to recap, is thirty nine years old. He's a an associate professor of genetics at the university, very smart man, but socially extremely awkward. And I think many people would say that he had has Asperger's or that he's somewhere on the spectrum. So while he's very smart, he, he speaks without a filter. Um, he's not much good at, at social interaction, and he's never had a second date. This mm. is a man who manages to, to mess it up on the, on the first date in some, in some way. So he's, he's broadly happy with his life. Um, he's got a job. Um, this is not a man who feels disabled. He feels... Um, annoyed that he lacks certain skills sometimes, but he wouldn't want to be you or me. He, uh, he's pretty happy the way he is, but he, he decides that he, he wants to have a wife. That's a logical thing. Married men live longer, uh, married men are happier, and science shows it. So uh, that's what he decides he wants to do. And he comes up, he's very science-based, right? He's, he's data-driven. That's right. He, he, he's a guy who's um, he's had a lot of bad experiences with the women, but his neighbor, his elderly neighbor, who he's very kind to, encourages him to think, hey, Don, there's someone out there for everybody. You've just got to find them. And Don says, well, dating is a very inefficient way of finding people. You waste a whole evening, and it's obvious in the first five minutes that the thing is going nowhere. Um, so Don decides that what he needs is a, a proper filter. So he designs a 16-page double-sided survey um, to filter out all the women who've given him grief in the past. <laughs> and I think we've, many of us have had this impulse, right? To, you know, we, we want to impose some sort of a process uh, on this, on this uh, thing that uh, just can't be, can't be fit into a process. Yeah, and look, I think in these days of internet dating, we don't have much choice about that. Um, there are hundreds of thousands or millions of people out there on the internet searching for partners, and you can't just sort of hang out a sign and say, open for business, you know, anybody welcome to apply. You've actually got to say, well, I'm looking for someone in the following age range, the following professions, perhaps. I've got the following attributes. Just in order to make sense of the huge number of people out there, um, you have to apply something like that. Whereas in the old days, you would meet people at work, you would meet them through your family. There'd only be a limited number of, of candidates, as, as Don would say. So, in fact, what, what Don is doing is not a million miles away from what we have to do informally. And, and maybe we're heading more and more in that direction, as you say, with, with the uh, increase in Internet dating and the like. Look, I think so. I mean, if you go back, you know, as you say, I, I started at 50, so I'm an old guy. But if you go back 20 years, nobody had met on the Internet. And yet you talk to people who are new couples today, and I would think a very significant percentage have met that way. Hmm. Uh, I often I, I wonder about this. You know, you're supposed to you put a bunch of data in and, and, and these online dating sites are supposed to crunch the numbers and come up with very, very likely candidates. Um, and then I just kind of go back to the old the old ways, and and maybe they're as effective. In, in other words, um, you know, older societies and uh, arranged marriages and the like. Well, look, absolutely. My my um, my grandparents were in effect a marriage of convenience. It was a case of her keep. She was a housekeeper. He was a widower, and she needed to keep a visa. And so he married her after only knowing her a couple of months in order so she could keep a visa and stay in England where he was living. And they were married for almost 50 years till his death, a very happy marriage. So, 
you know, I've got some reasonable personal experience of seeing that sort of thing pan out. And perhaps, you know, I mean, there's all these theories about this, but one of them is that people in an arranged marriage work harder. They, they realize that they've got a, a bigger job in front of them. So I think the, the other thing, too, is whether we actually know what we want. Um, my wife um, at one stage decided there was no way, you know, she was a mature lady here, there was no way she was going to marry anybody who was under five foot ten. That was it. And yet we met, and I'm five foot seven. So had had we um, we both been profiles up on the internet, it wouldn't have happened. And this is definitely something that Don learns, doesn't it? He 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 has a very definite idea of what he wants. It's a sixteen page, you know, scientifically valid questionnaire, and Rosie doesn't fit anything. No, she fits none of it. She's and that, and I created a character deliberately for that purpose. I wanted someone that would be absolutely everything that Don did not want. But perhaps she had something that Don needed but didn't realize he needed. Hmm. We're going to take a brief break. When we come back, we'll more with Graham Simpson. Uh, he's author of, uh, of an excellent uh, new novel, uh, Fast-Paced Funny. We're going to do some of that. Uh, have him read uh, a passage or two from the book. It's called The Rosie Project. Um, a uh, genetic uh, expert, DNA expert, Don Tillman. Uh, he has set out to uh, find the perfect partner using a 16-page scientifically valid survey to filter out uh, any undesirable aspects. By the way, Graham Simpson, um, th- this is one indication of, of his lack of filter. Um, he asks uh, the applicants for their BMI <laughs> body mass index. That, um, that's right, and he's, he's asking not just for health reasons. He wants to know they can do the math to work it out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we'll get into some of that as well. And uh, some, of the, some of the lessons uh, learned as he, as he goes along. More with Graham Simpson, who, by the way, is coming to Utah. He'll be at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City Saturday night at 7 o'clock, uh, talking about the Rosie Project. More following break. This week in This American Life, if you can't get seven cars in 12 days... You gotta look yourself in the mirror and say, holy, what are you kidding me? A car dealership in Long Island tries to sell its monthly quota of cars, 129 cars. It's not going well. I want balloons in the showroom. I just don't want one balloon to a car. Balloon the whole freaking place so it looks like a circus. Will it work? Find out this week. Sunday afternoons at two. On Utah Public Radio and programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, now open Monday through Saturday until 3, with a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries with local seasonal fruits, and lunch sandwiches. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest today is Graham Simpson. He's author of a new novel, The Rosie Project. Uh, it's got quite a bit of buzz, and it's been optioned for a uh, for a film. In fact, in its original form, it was a screenplay, so he's already head in the game. Uh, Graham Simpson uh, lives in Australia. He, uh, in uh, previous roles, was an IT specialist, uh, data modeling, founder of a business, IT consultancy. He helped establish two other businesses, Roy's Antiques and Pino Now. And he's married, father of two, resident of Fitzroy, which uh, I guess Graham Simpson is near Melbourne? 
It's an inner suburb of Melbourne, so okay. it's uh, about a mile or so from the centre of the city. Graham Simpson will be in Utah on Saturday. He's uh, going to be at the King's English Bookshop Saturday night at 7 o'clock. You have an opportunity to meet and greet. He'll read from the book, uh, Signed Copies of the Rosie Project. The Rosie Project uh, is uh, about Don Tillman. He's a brilliant yet socially challenged professor of genetics. He's decided it's time he found a wife. And uh, so he's a uh, professor, of course, orderly, evidence-based, and he uh, approaches this in the same way. He designs the Wife Project and uh, develops a 16-page scientifically valid survey to filter out anything undesirable. He meets Rosie Jarman, who's none of these things, but uh, she just might be who he needs. Uh, Graham Simpson, uh, by the way, you can join this conversation, hope that you will, with your perspective at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. You can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, and you can join us on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. Uh, Graham Simpson, you chose to uh, to use the voice of uh, of Don Tillman. In, in other words, the first person. Uh, yeah, look, that was that was the critical decision in going from um, a screenplay to a novel, and it just opened up a whole range of possibilities that I couldn't do in the screenplay. I mean, a a film is it's by its nature, it's a a god's eye view of things that you see, you know, or at least a great deal on. Uh, effectively a third person sort of view on the screen but um with first person you have the possibility of being in um in the protagonist's head and that just opened everything up because we're talking about an unusual person here and quite often when people are a little unusual a little strange um we see them only from the outside so if you think of something like rain man for example a great film but we really only see that dustin hoffman character from the outside we don't know what's going on Whereas writing in first person, we have the opportunity to, to be in their head, say, this must be what it's like. What I'm trying to do is to say, this is what it's like to be Don Tillman. And uh, you kind of have some fun when you have an unreliable narrator, which in the case of Don himself. That, that, that's exactly right, because Don says something like, uh, everyone in the room was dressed strangely. And you think, well, hang on. Maybe everybody in the room is not dressed strangely, and you're the one who's out of line, Don. Um, so you've, it makes the reader work a little bit harder, but it's, it's potentially a source of humor, um, a source of insight. Uh, there's a scene where Don shows up at a restaurant, and he has read the rules, and so he's wearing a jacket, but it's not a formal jacket. <laughs> well, it's not a formal jacket, but it's a vastly superior jacket. It's yes. got uh, multiple pockets. It's got... Uh, it's impervious to water. It's vastly better than the sort of jacket that you normally wear to a restaurant. So why shouldn't he be allowed in? And so he presses this argument, which is totally logical to him, and ends up uh, coming face to face with a bouncer. Yeah, that's right. In fact, that, that, that little incident that you you picked up there is the one plot um, item that stayed all the way. It was the very first thing I wrote. Um, in fact, I wrote it as a short story, as a, as a class exercise, and that then became incorporated into the screenplay. And as I went through various um, amendments and developments of the screenplay, lots and lots of things changed. At one stage, it was called the Clara Project for a long time. It was called the Clara Project. And then there was a point where I threw it all in the trash, and all I really kept was the character of Don Tillman and that little bit that you talked about called the jacket incident. So that's been a real survivor. I wonder if you'd uh, read a, a passage for me, uh, page 36, uh, starting page 36, about a third of the way down, and uh, then continuing 37 and, uh, and 38. Um, this is sort of launching into the, uh, 
He has his friend Gene uh, helping him with this. And this comes after a, a funny a funny incident um, where uh, he's he's speed dating, and he's, he's very proud of the fact that he has ordered the questions on the questionnaire uh, for um, optimal speed of rejection. Well, I've got to tell you, that's amazing that you picked that passage for me to read, because we did not plan this in advance, did we, Tom? You we did, you might we did not. to read something, and... When you started quoting page numbers, I thought, you've got the American edition in front of you, and I've got the Australian edition open in front of me. This is not going to match. And then you've told me the exact piece that I would choose to read. So there you go. Oh, excellent. This will uh, give people a little flavor of Don Tillman. Okay, so I think we've got the same piece. This is, my final non-internet option was speed dating, an approach I had not previously tried. The venue was a function room in a hotel. At my insistence, the convener disclosed the actual start time and I waited in the bar to avoid aimless interaction until then. When I returned, I sat at the last remaining seat at a long table, opposite a person labelled Francis, age approximately 50, body mass index approximately 28, not conventionally attractive. The convener rang a bell, and my three minutes with Francis commenced. I pulled out my questionnaire and scribbled a name on it. There was no time for subtlety under these circumstances. I've sequenced the questions for maximum speed of elimination, I explained. I believe I can eliminate most women in less than 40 seconds. Then you can choose a topic of discussion for the remaining time. But then it won't matter, said Francis. I'll have been eliminated. Only as a potential partner. We may still be able to have an interesting discussion. But I'll have been eliminated. I nodded. Do you smoke? Occasionally, she said. I put the questionnaire away. So... That's Don in action with his questionnaire, um, doing <laughs> a little field testing. Yeah, for for him, it's uh, it's about efficiency, right? Absolutely. And when you think about it, all it's doing is taking the idea of speed dating to its absolute limit. Okay, if you've got three minutes with people, why take out the full three minutes if you can knock them over in, in 15 seconds or so? And this illustrates kind of the disconnect between Don and and uh, social convention. Uh, the lady across the table from him is mystified. Why would you want to eliminate me with the first question? Sure, sure. And yet, why not? I mean, logically, that's that's what the speed dating is all about. And I guess we also see Don in there that he's a pretty kind guy. He's, he's saying, look, she's 50 years old. She's not conventionally attractive. Don's 39. Most of us would probably at this point have, have said, well, you know, I'll go through the motions here, but she's 10 years older than me, unattractive, last person left at the table, etc. And, and Don isn't worried by any of these things. The only thing that matters to him is that she smokes. Hmm. Later on, uh, just a little little past that passage, he's uh, talking with his friend Gene. They're, uh, you know, they're talking about the questionnaire. Um, there's some, I don't know, 250 or so responses, but none of them are a complete match. And that's important to Don. It has to be a complete match. Gene's trying to explain to him, you have to compromise. Yeah, and I, look, I think what I was wanting to say there, too, was Don's a bit ambivalent about this whole process. His heart isn't really in it. He, he's going through it because he thinks it's something he ought to do, but he's actually quite scared. He doesn't really want to actually meet any of these women and do any of this stuff. It's all a bit, it's all a bit intimidating and frightening, and it's tied to some bad experiences he's had. And Gene is saying to him, look, for goodness sake, man, you've got to just go out and Give, give a few a run. One lady that seems promising to Jean is eliminated. Uh, she believes in astrology, homeopathy, and she calculated her BMI incorrectly, Don says. Yep. Yep, and that's, and that's Don. I mean, who would want to go out with someone who couldn't do math? <laughs> and, of course, Jean, Jean is his, 
his unreliable philandering buddy. Um, so Gene is, is the guy who's coaching him. And, and sometimes Gene is giving him reasonable advice, but Gene is not coming from the same place as Don at all. Now, you, I believe you have not diagnosed Don with Asperger's sy- syndrome, um, but he's somewhere in that, in that area, is he, or where would you place him? Okay. What, what, what I used to answer to this question was, how would I know I'm not a psychologist? Um, it, I'm not qualified to tell you whether Don has Asperger's or not. And when people will say to me, did you do much research on Asperger's syndrome to create the Don character? My honest answer is I spent 30 years working in information technology. I met lots of people who were a lot like Don without ever reading um, anything technical on Asperger's syndrome. And in my age group, we were not of an age that was diagnosed as children with Asperger's. It wasn't a diagnosis that was really around um, in any serious way until the 1990s when we were adults, and it wouldn't have been applied to us by most psychologists, if indeed we'd ever turned up there. I say we, I talk about the people in the information technology profession and the academics that I, that I worked with, many of whom are quite a lot like, uh, like, like Don Tillman. So I would always avoid the question and say, look, how would I know he's just based on people I knew? But I sat down a few weeks ago with one of the, the world experts on, um, on Asperger's syndrome, a guy called uh, Professor Tony Atwood, and he said, Graham, I've got to tell you, Don Tillman has Asperger's syndrome. Mm. So the experts, as much as you can diagnose somebody on the page, the experts say Don Tillman indeed has Asperger's. But he didn't come out of any book or any textbook. He came out of, uh, of people I knew. Uh, so that, that stereotype, is, you're telling me, is essentially true? There are a lot of people, I, mean, I don't know if they self-select, but, but in the IT industry. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, look, I think, I think there's a certain amount of self-selection. We're talking about people who may be more comfortable working with ideas and objects and facts than they are with, say, emotions, people, and so on. So engineering, mathematics, information technology, these are the places they're, they're attracted to quite often. And it often, in those sort of professions, the technical skills are valued above social skills. I mean, in academe in particular... It's, you know, it's accepted that uh, a person's work is judged by the quality on the paper, not by the sort of human being they are. So it's, um, it's an, a natural place, academe and information technology, for people of this kind to be attracted to. Yeah, and I think a lot, a lot of those worlds, uh, data is king, isn't it? Well, absolutely. If you've got the facts, if you've got the knowledge, um, then, then those other attributes don't matter quite as much. And look, I think that's, that's not unreasonable. We, we put a lot of weight on the ability to deal with people and to read their expressions and all those sorts of things. But you can go through life without being particularly good at it and navigate a path and a career and, and relationships. Mm. Um, we, we all have our different, you know, our different um, strengths and weaknesses. And of course, you could expand this out. We, we all have these fears of being socially awkward. Well, well yes. I mean, when we say, you know, they talk these days, of course, about the, the autism spectrum of which Asperger's is at at one point on that spectrum, you could say we were all to some degree on some sort of spectrum that goes all the way from being tremendously socially competent and empathetic to, to the other end where um, what the extreme autism ends where you're just uh, incapable of any or capable of any very, very limited interaction. But a lot of the things that, that Don Tillman talks about are things that we've all experienced. Not knowing the right thing to say, putting our foot in it, um, not being sure what somebody else is thinking. The very first time when I took that jacket incident story to class, um, 
everybody was discussing whether whether the hero, whether Don Tillman had Asperger's syndrome. And one woman in the class said, oh, for goodness sake, everybody, he's just a bloke. He's just a man. And she was saying that, you know, all men have, have some of Don, Don Tillman's attributes <laughs> to a greater or lesser extent. And these are certainly stereotypical traits that we that men are often criticised for, you know, being problem solvers rather than being empathetic listeners, those sorts of things. And I think uh, sometimes we all get uh, tired of the complication that is interpreting people. We, we'd all like to interpret people literally the way Don does. Yeah, and we'd all like to say what we what we think sometimes. Yeah, And, and Don does that. He says it straight. He says it without malice. Um, he's not trying to be cruel to anybody, um, but he just tells them what he sees. There's a very funny uh, passage, um, it's chapter 2. Um, he's giving a talk, and he gets interrupted, and somebody says, you're, you're speaking too much above us. Can you, can, you, can you tone it down? And he gets annoyed. Yeah, yeah. And look, he says at the point, he says, um, he's talking about DNA. It's what we're made up of. And he says, yeah, people can find five days to watch a cricket match. So it's a very Australian reference there. People can find five days to watch a cricket match, but they can't even find sort of 20 minutes to, to learn about what it is that we're made up of. Hmm. So, um, and yeah, very true. Now, I know you wouldn't want to... You, you, he's now being diagnosed. He officially has Asperger's, <laughs> Don does. But you wouldn't want him, as as a, if you had a friend with Asperger's, you wouldn't want them, nor would they, to be defined by their diagnosis, would you? He's, as well, that this lady is a said, really a interesting question, Tom, because um, one of the things that, um, that writing the book has done is to bring me into more contact with the Asperger's community and with people who put their hand up and say, look, I've got, I've got Asperger's syndrome. Um, so even though I didn't do any research on Asperger's to write the book, inevitably afterwards I've done some reading and talked to people about this. And it seems, um, and it's something I've actually managed, I think, to pick up in the book, some people just absolutely do not want that label. They, they feel they'll be defined by it, um, that, that they'll be seen as disabled, whatever. Um, and conversely, um, you have some people who take some comfort or in identifying that way who say, hey, hang on, now I understand. So for many people, it's a relief to be diagnosed with Asperger's. Now I understand where I'm coming from. I'm part of a community. I'm normal in the sense that there are plenty of people out there who are like me. Um, so there are different, there are different views about, about it. One, one of the things that's interesting to me is people will say it's like being in Sheldon Cooper's head, um, Sheldon Cooper from The Big Bang Theory. And all the way I was reading the book, I was thinking about Sheldon Cooper. I get it very, very commonly on, on Twitter. And what I see there is people almost saying everybody with Asperger's is the same. You know, Sheldon Cooper is Don Tillman. And I think it's really important that we have different, you know, many heroes or protagonists out there who have Asperger's because they're quite a part of our community and recognize that, they, that we can see past their similarities to their differences. Mm. There's a fine line, isn't there? You, you laugh at Don, we laugh at Don, but you don't want to cross that line. Well, it was a huge ethical thing that I had to sit down and, and look at hard before I even... Um, well, I originally envisaged it as a drama, so it wasn't a problem. My, my first idea of the screenplay was a drama about this socially challenged man looking for a wife and the, and the pain and so on that he goes through. 
But people laughed at what I was doing, particularly the jacket incident and so on. And I thought about re-envisaging it as a comedy. And the question, of course, is, are we laughing at someone who's disabled? And what I would say here, and what I concluded, was Don would not consider himself disabled. He does not want to be neurotypical. In fact, he considers people who are neurotypical as, as being disabled, as not being sharp, as, as being clouded by emotions and so on. So he's happy the way he is. And that's, I think, a, a crucial part of it. The other is we don't so much laugh at Don, we laugh at the unexpectedness of the situation. I mean, if I was to say an Australian, an American, and a Canadian walk into a bar, you know that this is going to be a joke about a Canadian. <laughs> that, that at the end of this, the Australian's going to do something predictable that we set up, the American's going to do something similar, and then our expectations are going to be confounded by this weird thing the Canadian does. And we may laugh at the Canadian, we may think the Canadian's a fool, or we may go the other way because the Canadian has shown up, the Australian and the American, as having got it wrong. And he's found a, or she's found a smarter way through it. And that's what Don does. Wherever Don goes, he generates the unexpected. And quite often we find ourselves you know, banging our head with our fist and saying, well, of course that's what you would do. That's entirely logical. Or that's exactly what Don would do. Why didn't I see it? But we're laughing because of the the unexpected. And the other thing that Don does is he's, in effect, an observational comedian. He sees the world through different eyes. He takes a sort of forensic examination of our social conventions, of the things that we do, and, and we see them laid bare and realize how, how ludicrous and constructed they are. Mm. Uh, it's, it's interesting. The form itself can can get you to humor you were setting up that joke which had no punchline but i was already predisposed to laugh right yeah that, that's right and but we, we are, we're ready to laugh at the unexpected mm -hmm. um and look and that's and then there's some technical stuff that goes in i mean that is a classic rule of three one two bang and i certainly because i'm writing for comedy um i consciously use um some some technical comedy forms and so forth to to make things work there's uh there's a part of don tillman uh just just lovable in his it's a lovable naivete i'm thinking of um as you've said and i think others have said about about him he doesn't have game he he's guileless uh there's there's a, a passage where he learns from rosie that uh, she thinks gregory peck is the most handsome movie star the next costume party, he he shows up as Gregory Peck. That's something that most of us it would be a little more subtle. He, he's yeah, and it's not even a costume party. Yeah. Oh, he, it's not even a costume party. Okay. <laughs> oh, I see. Well, that's even better. Uh, so th that is very direct. Most of us would not do that, but uh, I think maybe we'd want to. It's it's a very direct. Yeah, absolutely. You say, "Wow, he's the handsomest guy, hottest guy who ever lived," and you say, "Right, well, that's that's the obvious thing to do." It and it works for him. Mm -hmm. I mean. We're talking with Graham Simpson. He's author of a new novel. It's called The Rosie Project. And uh, he'll be at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City on Saturday, Saturday night, 7 o'clock in Salt Lake City, an opportunity for you to interact with Graham Simpson. Uh, he was reading and signing copies from The Rosie Project. The Rosie Project has its hero, Don Tillman, a brilliant yet socially challenged professor of genetics. 
he's decided it's time to he found a wife. He embarks on the Wife Project, a 16-page scientifically valid survey to filter out all the drinkers, smokers, and late arrivers. Rosie Jarman is all of those things. She, uh, according to the project, is totally inappropriate, but he just might find what he needs instead of what he wants. We'll talk a little bit more about Rosie when we come back following the break. Did you know that approximately 75% of students who receive mental health services get these services in school settings? School psychologists and school counselors are key mental health providers who help teachers and families maximize students' active engagement in learning and strengthen their personal, academic, and social development. Did You Know That is made possible by the USU Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services. More at cehs.usu.edu. And programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3, introducing 100% whole grain bread with raisins, oatmeal date bread, millet pan loaf, and ciabatta buns. Thanks for staying with us for Access Utah. We have another about 15 minutes left in the program. You can join it if you have a question or comment about the Rosie Project. Uh, we're talking with Graham Simpson, who's the author of the book. Uh, it uh, has his hero, Don Tillman, brilliant yet socially challenged professor of genetics. He embarks on what he calls the Wife Project, trying to find his perfect partner through a 16-page scientifically valid survey. He meets Rosie Jarman. Uh, she's none of those things. He eliminates her quickly from the project, uh, but they embark on her project. She's trying to find her biological father. Don is a DNA expert, and so they're thrown together. She just might be what he needs, not what he wants. Graham Simpson is author of screenplays, short stories, novels, a couple of short plays, occasional producer of films. He lives in Fitzroy in the uh, a suburb of Melbourne, Australia, and he's in the United States for a Western swing, and he'll be in uh, Salt Lake City on Saturday, 7 o'clock in the evening, King's English Bookshop. You're welcome to join this conversation at 1-800-826-1495. You can join us on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page, or you can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com. Um, I was thinking it was a reading uh, through the book, and as we are talking... Uh, just the regular process of dating has its absurdities and provokes fears. It's it's quite the fierce process if you think about it. Oh yeah, um, it's one of the most um, intimidating things that we do, um, and there's so much at stake. I mean, Don says it's the most critical decision of your life, and well, yes, it is. Um, so there's a lot of pressure on in dating. Did uh, any passages from the book uh, rip straight from your life? Well, they say a character um, is a third someone you know, a third yourself, and a third you make up. And there's, there's a few bits and pieces there, I guess. Some of the observational stuff, and I'd be, it'd be hard to put my finger on it. Some of it is, is very much me doing a little bit of observational comedy um, in Don Tillman's skin. Mm. There's no, there's no The nearest thing is the cocktail scene, believe it or not, um, where Don and Rosie. Um, pose as cocktail waiters or get jobs as cocktail waiters so they can get DNA samples from the guests at the cocktail party um, to see if one of them might be Rosie's biological father. And Don virtually sort of swallows the cocktail book and becomes um, an expert cocktail maker who's, you know, and it's just 
many people's favourite scene in the book. And that was very loosely drawn from um, a night where I posed as a wine waiter um, and sort of swallowed the, uh, the wine dictionary. So just something we did when mm. I was much, much younger. Interesting. Uh, what's the reaction you've been getting, and is, does it differ between men and women? Mainly it's women who buy fiction, particularly fiction which has got, you know, about relationships, say, rather than thrillers and so forth, more than men. So like it or not, the market out there for fiction is, is a largely female market. Um, so I'm very gratified when I get men coming to me and telling me, <clears throat> Me, how much they enjoyed the book. Often it's been sort of put to them by their wives or recommended by another man. But I say, look, I'm a, I'm a middle-aged man. The protagonist is a is a man. You know, what more do you want? This is a, a guy's view of the world. And men, if they get past the first five pages, well, if you say to them, just just read the first five pages, indulge me, they very seldom seem to put it down. It's mm. you know, it's a comedy. It's engaging for that reason. Tell me about Rosie. She seems well, to hearken back to those old, you know, screwball kids. She's a strong character. Yes, yeah, she is. And she was the toughest part of the whole creative process. So all the way, I mean, I spent five years working on this as a screenplay before rewriting it as a novel. And of, of everything I did during that, of every problem I had to tackle, creating the Rosie character was the toughest thing. Because I wanted someone who would be um, everything that Don didn't want, but still something that he needed, but it had to work the other way too. There had to be value in Don for her. She had to have a reason. I didn't want what they call the manic pixie dream girl, just someone who was only on this earth to, to look after Don. She had to have her own motivations. And I think writing it as a screenplay helped a lot there because you think, what about an actor, an actress, your female, reading for Rosie? Would she say, here's a character who has proper motivations, who has a real life and an arc of her own? Or is she just a cardboard cutout who's there to, to show off the protagonist? So she was she was very challenging, and frankly, as a man, it's harder to write female characters than male characters. Did you, by the way, have any specific actors in mind when you're writing the screenplay? No, a lot of screenwriters do. A lot of screenwriters um, envisage particular actors. I don't, and perhaps that's why I've ended up as a novelist rather than a screenwriter. Um, but... You know, I have a, a picture of the person in my head, but I'm not relating them to a particular actor. Mm. Although, although I have to say that um, Alec Baldwin would is, is so close to what I imagine Don's unreliable buddy Gene as being. I think of Alec Baldwin in, for example, it's complicated, and I think, yep, that's the Gene character is <laughs> unreliable buddy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can, I can, I can see it in my head. Um... So Rosie's quest is to find her biological father, and of course that uh, th- th- that's a reason to stay with uh, with Don. He's a DNA expert. Yeah, look, I mean, the, technically, in a romantic comedy, the, the, the challenge is all about finding a reason to keep the two together without, which isn't love, as it were. Um, so something's got to throw these two people together. It's got to be a quest, or it's got to be your work or whatever it might be. And these guys are on a quest. So that's the engine that drives the story, that keeps them together, that keeps throwing them to each other's company and gives gives Don a lot of opportunity to, to show his stuff, as it were, um, in terms of inventive ways of getting DNA uh, and so on. So I think one of the things that makes a person attractive is, is competence, um, mastery of what they do. So we put Don in the, the best possible place for him, which is doing his scientific thing. These are very universal desires that each of these people have. Rosie's looking for her father. 
She's looking yeah. looking for her heritage, I guess. Yeah, and Don's looking for a partner. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're both looking for connection where they belong in some way. Um, so so there are themes there, and they both have ideals. Um, they both have. I, Don has an ideal view of what his uh, his perfect wife will be like, but Rosie has idealised her father. She's been brought up by her um, her stepfather, in effect, the, the man who stood by um, her mother when she became pregnant to, to somebody else. Um, but she's got no time for him. She's looking for this ideal man who we who we realise can must be somewhat less than ideal since he didn't stick around. And what they're both searching for is not what they find. That, well, that, this is right. Um, yeah. They they learn, and, and this is, of course, a um, very, very classic thing to do in a, in a story, that, that someone sets out looking for one thing, and their journey, in fact, involves realizing that that's not what they were really wanting or what they needed, They and they turn their attention to something else. Is there a message? that Did you set out with, with a message, or have you found one as you've gone back? One, one that uh, one reviewer talked about is that we can become a better version of ourselves. Yeah, look, um, I think that if you start off with a message, you end up writing badly. Hmm. Um, well, certainly I do. Um, and I think many authors would say the same thing, that if you, if you are there to deliver a message when you're writing fiction, um, you, you will tend to be um, on the nose, you'll be, you'll be too direct, You'll be, you'll be preaching at people. Um, the messages, if there are messages and ideas um, in the book, emerged as I told the story. Um, and they come out of your own beliefs. Um, you're, writing, you're writing a story with your own beliefs on board, and, and they come through. And, and the, what, what the, the ideas in the book are about tolerance, I think, about how we classify things, about how we identify, um, about how we know ourselves, even about what makes a good relationship. We talked earlier in the program. I want to loop back to this. You, you know, you spent part of your life in data modeling. Yeah. Um, and we talked about uh, trying to impose a process on something that essentially is, you know, it's life. It's messy. But it seems like, you know, with, with computers and with with um, even with DNA and with you know science advancing. It uh, seems like that's, a, that's an impulse that is growing stronger in our world. Well, just to make sense of the complexity around us, I mean, this is my data modeling hat on, we classify things. We, we say, you know, these two things are not exactly the same. I mean, if I'm designing a computer system, your insurance policy is not the same as my insurance policy, but we're going to have to put them in the same file together. Um, so we say, okay, we've got a concept of insurance policy, and they'll all be lumped in together. Um, and we do the same in life. We say Asperger's syndrome. And what one of the surprising things for me talking about the book is how, how stereotyped that is. Oh, you can't have Don Tillman drinking because people with Asperger's don't drink. Now, it may or may not be true that, a certain, that the percentage of Asperger's, people with Asperger's who drink might be less or more than the general community. But that doesn't mean that my hero, Don Tillman, can't take a drink or have a different view on something else, or vote Republican, or whatever it might be that isn't typical of people with Asperger's. So um, that, that desire to, to classify things can go too far sometimes. And I think particularly when we're talking about um, human nature, about psychological traits, and so forth. You know, we're not talking about, about things that we can measure in, in the normal sense here.
So do you think, uh, you know, looping back again to the Asperger's and portrayals of people with Asperger's in the in the media, um, essentially, does this help Don Tillman, Sheldon Cooper? Maybe we get a, you know, a, a third person that becomes famous in, in the media and they're all slightly different that that helps us to unclassify? I think it's really, really important. Um, you know, I mean, I'm talking to, to someone in Utah at the moment, and so you know, if you if you talk to somebody in Australia and you use the word Mormon, for example, because the population there, uh, the number of Mormons you might meet in your day-to-day life is going to be a lot lower, chances are people will have a stereotypical view of a missionary or something like that. There'll be a particular stereotype that just jumps to mind. I figure if you live in Salt Lake City, that stereotype's not going to be useful to you anymore. You're going to meet such a variety of people with that religious belief that you'll just see you'll see the differences rather than the similarities. Hmm. So um, I think it's really important that we have that exposure and we start to see people's differences so that if someone does identify, for example, as having Asperger's, we don't think that's the whole of the person. We don't think, well, that's all I need to know now. They're going to be this weird guy who's weird in a certain way. Uh, I've read that uh, you are planning a sequel. Is that true? Um, I'm more than planning it. Um, yeah. I'm writing it uh, pretty much right now. I yeah. was working on it yesterday, and I'll be working on it today. So uh, people read The Rosie Project. They can be assured that uh, these characters will continue. Yeah, look, I mean, the book has been remarkably successful. It's only it's only just been published in October um, in the U.S., but it was published in um, in January in Australia. That was where the first place it was published. And we're now going at... Uh, around 40 countries and 36 languages. So it's it had a fantastic reception around the world. And um, I was not originally going to write a sequel. I had another book in mind for my next book. But I found, in the end, I found a way into a sequel. And, and obviously there's a lot of people who are giving me some nice messages about waiting for that. Hmm. Uh, and you have settled on writing novels. That's what you're going to be doing? Yeah, look, I, I have got the, the uh, job with Sony um, to do the screenplay for the Rosie Project, and uh, I've just submitted a, a redraft of it. So you go through various stages of, of redrafting screenplays, and I'm certainly enthusiastically excited about that job. But going forward, I, I see myself as working on novels rather than screenplays. Hmm. Well, congratulations! The Rosie Project is uh, has been uh, quite successful. Um, and Graham Simpson will be in Utah. He's on a western U.S. swing. He'll be in Arizona and Colorado at Utah on Saturday. He's at the King's English Bookshop Saturday night at 7 o'clock with uh, reading from and signing copies of The Rosie Project. And uh, you can find out uh, more about uh, Graham Simpson on uh, his website, grahamsimpson.com. Um, it's been a pleasure, Graham Simpson. Thanks you for uh, taking the time. Great talking to you, Tom. And uh, join us tomorrow. We're going to be uh, talking with an Iranian-American. He's written an interesting book about taking his wife and young son back to Iran for a year. And uh, the book is called The Ministry of Information Invites You to Not Stay. We'll learn about Iran and ask him about uh, current uh, nuclear talks as well. That's tomorrow on the program. And uh, for producers uh, Katie Swain and Bettit Purser, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks so much for listening today. Commentator Thad Box. The people we send to Washington would benefit from joining Alcoholics Anonymous. I doubt any of these godly mans have a drinking problem, but AA would expose them to the serenity prayer, often attributed to Reinhold Niebuhr. 
God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can change, and the wisdom to know the difference. Regardless of what one thinks of President Obama, or how awful they think the Affordable Care Act is, Mr. Obama was elected president by an overwhelming majority. Obamacare is the law of the land, passed by Congress and upheld by the Supreme Court. Closing down the government and threatening to make the greatest nation in the world default on its debt and throw us into a depression to limit Obamacare was something a suicide bomber might do. It's not what one would expect from a sane politician who respects the rule of law. Our neighbors working for the federal government, Utah's biggest employer, found their paychecks in jeopardy. Grants were interrupted, contracts to universities, hospitals, and social service institutions were in limbo, folks seeking money to buy a house or a student loan were put on hold, uncertainty caused the value of most people's retirement nest egg to shrink. Practically everyone was adversely affected because of those we elected didn't know, or probably didn't care, what they could change. We could be better served by drunkards. For over 200 years, our government, though fiercely partisan, has been guided by politics that seek the art of the possible. There is no art, and little is possible, in the my way or no way politics in Washington today. Our Constitution states that Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion. Reinhold Niebuhr was a Christian theologian, but I think that Muslims and Buddhists and Jews and agnostics and atheists would like our officials to work together to do the things they can do, refrain from things they cannot do, and have sense enough to know one from the other. This is Thad Box. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD 1, 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD 1, 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD 1, 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD 1, 88.7 Moab, and KUSUFM HD 1, 91.5 Logan.